I wanted to share a tool that I started using recently. And if you're doing any prospecting or lead sourcing from LinkedIn, it's definitely worth checking out. The tool is called Surf and it's spelled S-U-R-F-E. It's a Chrome extension that allows you to add contacts to your CRM directly from LinkedIn. I use it to add contacts quickly, follow my deals, keep track of my notes. And it's actually saved me a bunch of time. The data is always 100% accurate because I don't have to copy and paste each detail from each contact over to my CRM. Instead, Surf does it all for me automatically with just one click. Now, the folks over at Surf have been kind enough to put together a promo offer for fans of SSP. You can go to the link in the show notes and use the promo code JWSURF with an E5 for a 5% discount on your first year. Check out the link in the show notes and go check them out. I've got a secret weapon for you that's going to skyrocket your sales without the unnecessary headaches that come along with using one of the big player CRM systems. That secret weapon is Close CRM. Now let's face it, we've all been there. We've used a clunky, confusing system that kind of makes you want to throw your laptop out the window. Well, fear not, Close is here to save your time, money, and sanity. Close has all of the powerful sales tools you need, minus the drama, to manage your leads, track your deals, and crush your targets effortlessly. It has calling, emailing, SMS, multi-channel sequences, and it even has meeting tracking built right in. It's easy to set up and implement. You can stop screwing around with CRMs that aren't built for you and start selling and managing customers today. You can start a free trial using the link in the show notes, special for SSP fans. My guest today is Zachary Ballinger. Zachary is the CRO and co-founder of an Indianapolis-based startup called Casted, and he and I go back about five years. We worked really closely together at one point, and he's just an awesome seller. So I'm super excited to have him on the show today. A few things to highlight around his skill set and where he brings a lot of expertise to this business. He has some really great ideas and tips for being a top performer, what that entails, some specifics there. So pay attention to those. But another thing that I really respect and admire about Zach is his ability to just own who he is, be 100% genuine, and take that to his customers and prospects and find a lot of success that way. So welcome, Zachary, to the show. Ludi Lettergor. Oh, my God. Uh, just, I'm going to say Udi, this, like the CMO of Lev. Or of, so, of Gong, fuck. So what's he doing? Gong. He's <laughs> no worries. What? So he's doing like a piano challenge for prospects. Like, like what is? No, that? no. I, I, I think it's just like with other revenue leaders in like in the SaaS space. Like it's kind of a fun little. Let me see if I can find one here. Dun 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 dun. Don't be boring. Okay, here we go. Oh, it's five five days ago. So copy link to this. I'll shoot it over to you. Um, and then like people are like responding with more like piano. It's pretty awesome. Interesting. Interesting approach. Yeah. I mean, he's just like, I mean, yeah. Well, he's awesome. using, you know, he's using his talents. So, uh, I respect it. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's, it's great. I have no, none of that talent. So. So that's the interesting thing about working from home is I do feel like, like, for example, the fact that I've known you for years and you didn't know that I played the guitar, but now that I work from home and my home office in the background has a guitar, that's like, so, so I'm learning a ton about people that I've known for years that I never went to their houses and I mm. have actually been to your house. <laughs> that's you, that's maybe you not even my the best apartment example. though. You were my apartment. Like my house was, I had a lot of stuff in storage back then. It's like, you don't even know the nerd shit that I've got. No, 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 hold on. I went to your house in, uh, is it Woodruff Place? Is that what oh, it's called? Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. I did, oh, I did man. Yeah. I stayed the night there. 
I stayed the night there. Your Roomba scared the shit out of me at like one in the morning when it fired up underneath the couch that I was sleeping on. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually do remember that now. Yeah. Uh, the 1am Roomba schedule was, that was amateur hour. Like that's the type of shit that a first time Roomba owner has. Now I've got multiple Roombas. It's like, I'm t talking like someone who like has a bunch of dogs. I'm like, well, and then my second Roomba came on and then I knew better. <laughs> your, um, your fleet of Roombas. Uh, <laughs> So do you still have that house there? Or I know you you live, you're off the grid now. Not off the grid. I wish we were off the grid. No, um, we, we, had, we sold that and we bought our farm. Um, but no, yeah, we, we, we got rid of the house. But the funny thing is we bought this like fixer upper on the farm and, um, we, we were trying to like renovate it to make it look like our old house, which is such a stupid thing. Like if you loved your house so much, why'd you leave it? But we just wanted yeah. some land. And we realized like how much the people before us must have spent on that old house to like make it nice. Cause we're trying to do like just the same types of like trim and like floor. And we're like, holy shit, this is the most expensive thing I've ever seen. Learning lessons. Yeah. Unless you can do a bunch of it yourself. What I'm finding as a fairly recent homeowner is like, if you can't go in and do a lot of the work yourself, then it, it, I mean, it's expensive hiring someone else to come in and try to do stuff for mm -hmm. you carpenters mm. and contractors and even just landscaping man and and i live in arizona where like my landscape just throw some rock. rocks on it yeah. that, that's what we have <laughs> it's, it's just rocks i don't even have to mow anything i just water the rocks so well awesome man so t so i i want to learn i want my audience to learn a little bit about you and your background and first and foremost i'll share that you and i have known each other probably now for five plus years we work together at a startup called smarter hq and what I do remember about your background was that you studied like sex psychology or something and religion, which those are two, two, two topics I'm really passionate about, of course. Uh, but yeah, tell us about your background. It was not. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I didn't even realize we were recording. I'm allowed to cuss on this one, right? Um, hey, this is, I, I want to be the Joe Rogan of the sales, uh, arena. So I don't care. Uh, do you be you on this? And that's what I think people want to hear most is like, oh, who man. are the everyday sellers? I, I don't want to hear some polished manager bullshit. The Joe Rogan of sales podcast. So you're going to deny that masks actually do anything. That's going to be a fun topic. No, that I'm not going to do, okay, but cool. more the open form, free form, long <laughs> form, whatever you want to call it in the podcasting world. Just the, the real, the rawness of, of Joe Rogan is what I want to capture. Got it. Got it. Cool. Okay. That's, that's, that's more my style. So I actually went to school for um, television production and management and sexual psychology. The, the religion thing was um, a whole story that we're just not going to get into on this, but um, uh, cults are alive and real, guys. And, and sometimes when you're in college, you just fall into them. Um, that's a, we're going to have to edit that part out. Just like, we'll just not get into it and then we'll just like cut that part. Um, but yeah. no, yeah, they, I actually, I, I um, went to a school where uh, television production and management was, a, was an option. It was super fun really early. And then um, I always was interested in psychology. But then I learned that like the school that I was like double majoring in, you, you specialize. So you have to like pick a, a specialty um, in psych. And I was 18 years old and thought, <laughs> sexual psychology, of course, because what 18 year old doesn't think that's the greatest thing in the world. And, um, it didn't occur to me until like my fourth year that you like psychology does nothing for you if you don't get your master's or doctorate and I didn't have the patience for it. <laughs> so, um, I don't do anything with my, with my 
schooling at all. Me neither. I mean, and I studied like journalism and mass communication. The only thing that was relevant to my college experience was my, like one of the senior level classes I took was digital entrepreneurship. And mm. we had to actually pitch a business idea to a group of Bay Area VCs, which was like the one class defined my entire four years of college where I was like, wow, that's actually like a useful skill that I could use in, in a real job. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> It occurs to me as we're as we're talking about this, we we're actually literally both using what we went to school for right now. Like you went for journalism, mass communication. That is literally a podcast. And that's uh, true. Like television production and management, you can't do television without radio. So I also went to a bunch of radio classes. And I remember in college, this is something that I, I hope no one that I went to school with or, or knew me back then. This gets back to them, but like I used to joke that radio was just dead, and like there was nothing that was ever going to come from it. And then podcasts start to like creep up as I'm leaving school and, and yeah. shows that like audio is certainly not dead. Radio may not be what it used to be, but, but holy shit is, is audio gaining an actual yeah. like foothold. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I don't think I heard about pod. I don't know when I first heard about podcasts, but I do remember there was some, some people in my life that were like, you should go get a broadcast radio sales job. And I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, that you. doesn't sound like I'll have a job in two years. So no, uh, I want to go, go, I want to go work in tech. So that was, that was my, my path. So yeah. How did you end up in the software as a service business? Hmm. So, you know, what, what actually ended up happening is I, I, as I left school, I actually put more, so I worked at the television station for like a second and decided that I hated it. Um, it was actually a Sinclair station, Sinclair, who was in, uh, you know, the news, um, yep. quite a few years back. Um, you can Google it. Um, and it was terrible. They had, um, basically dictated what we could and couldn't report on. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm all this bright eyed, bushy tailed young guy who thinks that like journalistic integrity is the most important thing. And like, I was actually more wanting to do creative stuff anyway, but I was working in news to kind of pay my dues. And I decided like it, it didn't fit. So I started putting in my, my psychology background, not the sexual psych part, but my psychology yeah. part. And I started working at this, um, this home for troubled youth. So they were sentenced here and they had to live at this home. And it was often for um, abuse of some sort or they had drug addictions. And I really loved it. It was really fun, um, you know, relative to the, the success, not fun in that people were really struggling with stuff. But it was, it was a very challenging and fulfilling job. But as I rounded my second year, as I started to get into my second year there, like it was just too much. It was too much of a toll. I wasn't getting paid really anything above poverty line. Like I was really struggling. And a really good friend of mine who I'd gone to to middle school with and I, uh, Adam Paterino, I'll shout him out because he's co-founder of the company I'm at here. And you know Adam and... Yeah, he's a cool dude. He's just been prevalent in our lives forever. But Adam and I, so Adam had taught himself how to code in college. And so I thought, oh, I'll teach myself as well really quick. And um, I did poorly. And Adam and I started uh, kind of this freelance business together where it it became very apparent very quickly that Adam was the, was the technical genius. And I was just really good at like scrounging up the money and like finding the people to buy us. And um, he was in, in Bloomington, Indiana at the time, which is where Indiana University is. And I was in Evansville, Indiana at the time, which is the southern tip of Indiana, nowhere near an actual um, metropolitan area. But our goal was to, to, to get back together, to, to kind of 
um, go to Indianapolis and come back into touch, like like physical touch, uh, so that we could actually see each other, um, and then work in in um, tech, whatever that meant. And yeah. so we both ended up getting jobs like within months of each other in Indianapolis, and um, it was all about the money at the time. And I remember I was making like 30k, and he was making like 36k, and we were like living on top of the world. It was a, it was a really good, um, time, but like, that's really how I got into SaaS. Like I, I came back, I worked for an agency, um, that, that worked with exact target, exact targets, like the big Indianapolis success story. And so I was actually at exact targets offices every day. I worked from their office rather than my agency's office. Um, and it spiraled from there. And then I just got obsessively interested. And then tell, tell us how you got into software sales. Cause when I first met you, you were not a seller yourself. Oh, Jesse, that's not true. So I got... Well, okay. So yeah, yeah. correct history here. Because because when I first met you, you were a Solcon, a solutions consultant. Solcons are sales, baby. Um, I got I got recruited out of um, my exact target kind of career um, by the startup SmartHQ. And they needed a solutions consultant, which is... Even even now, it's it's my favorite position at any company. I think there's this awesome liaison between sales and implementation and customer success. So I, I got pulled into there by uh, a guy named Jason Fordham, um, who I have no idea how he even knew who the hell I was. Um, and then he he mentored me and, and taught me how to do Soulcon. And I'm I'm a know it all at my core, and so like there's something appealing to me about. Um, being a Solcom because you, you're kind of the trusted advisor in a sales cycle. And so when the, the the sales rep is there, like really, you know, kind of flaunting their wares and really trying to get you to go in and and make a decision whether you're ready or not, the Solcom's there. You know, sometimes pumping the brake, sometimes helping, you know, pre- press the gas because. Um, they understand your tech stack. They understand um, the fit. They understand exactly how you're going to achieve the success. So that's that's really where I got my start. But I, I really count. I, I think I really think that Solcons are sales. So not a, not a full correction, but yeah, no, I, I was I was in a si- selling role. I just was not the uh, the closer. The, the the closer, the quota carrying per se. Sure. Although I think a lot of Solcons carry quotas. Man, there's a really good friend of mine, and I'm, I'm going to have her on the show at some point, but she was a Solcon, and the, the story goes that the way she ended up as a, she's like a sales director now for a really well-known unicorn company, and she was a Solcon, and her AE or her field salesperson never showed up for a meeting, and she ran it and closed the deal, and that was it. Like, that, like she did, she was, and she was like, I didn't do anything special. I just stepped in, explained the product, the deal closed. It was a massive deal. And after that, I went to the management and said, I should probably just be a field salesperson. Uh, and there it is. The rest is history. So I agree. They are absolutely, especially in software, absolutely is the Solcon a critical role. Unfortunately, I don't really have one in my current role. Uh, I have to leverage some of our product team and some, you know, other leadership resources to come in whenever the product discussions get super deep. But I do realize they're a huge and very valuable part of the software sales cycle for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. They're the favorite position by far. But I mean, to answer your actual question, how did I get to actual, like, how did I start in sales? Um, I was the lead sole con at Smarter HQ and, and then there was a gap. There was a, um, I don't know if the, the rep left or he was asked to leave or whatever happened. Um, but there was some territory that was open and our sales leader, um, Jesse, you'll, you'll remember this relatively well, um, asked me to go fill that gap for a short period of time. And 
um, similar to your friend's experience, like it, it wasn't any different. It was just making sure that you document a little bit better on the front and back yeah. end. And uh, it was thrilling. It was really fun. You know, you, you close a deal, you close a second deal, and then your commission check comes, and you're you're just like shit. Like this, I'm I'm in. Let's let's go have some fun with this. And that's really where it happened. I, I closed a few as a favor um, to our VP of Sales, and then he was like, "I'm gonna give you a quota going in the next year." And nice. I stayed in, I stayed in that role. You became my SDR at the time, actually. Yep. And yeah. uh, we we. We did amazing in year one. I mean, year one was un- unbelievable. And, and so I just had a lot of fun with it. And, and that's really where I got my start. And uh, yeah, I've kind of gone back and forth my whole career since then. That was fun being your SDR because that that was my first experience really working with enterprise brands, you know, household name companies, retailers specifically at that company. But that was really the first experience like in that role going in and actually working with high level execs in companies that I had known about forever. It wasn't like, you know, at that point we weren't trying to get into small mom and pop shops. It was trying to get, you know, big retail deals done, which was really, you know, pivotal for me. And that's the world I play in now. And, and it's funny because I prospect a lot of the same people that you and I were talking to back in those days. And it's a similar product, you know, similar space, similar competing priorities, all of that. Uh, but it's, you know, definitely was, was foundational for me to start building that Rolodex there. And, uh, man, we had a blast. It was, it was so much fun, especially back then. Cause we were like on the road, we were going to shows. I absolutely miss doing that stuff. This year has been such a, just, you know, just kind of, you know, a shit sandwich because of the, the coronavirus and stuff, not being able to go to shows and not being able to go on site. Yeah. So well, cool. So now I, tell- shows, like, I don't miss travel even, even a little. Yeah. Yeah. So tell, tell us about what you're doing now. Uh, and uh, you know, you're not necessarily in a contributor role anymore. You're, you've got a pretty good title where you're at, but, but tell us about, you know, what a day looks like in the life. Maybe, maybe give us an idea of what Casted does and, and what your role is there and, and what your day-to-day looks like. Sure. Can you hear me all right? I know my internet just told me I was not great. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're coming in clear. Cool. Yeah, so I am the chief revenue officer of Casted now. Um, we, we took out a big gap in my career growth, so I didn't just jump from an individual contributor to a CRO. But um, yeah, Casted, I, I helped found with Adam Paterino and our CEO, Lindsay Chepkema. And um, we're really helping marketers take their podcast, uh, a little meta here, and um, do more with it. So allowing them to actually um, give access to the rest of their team. So give, give the rest of their team access to the podcast, amplify the podcast, where it goes, who it reaches. Um, and then most importantly, attribute that to revenue and leads and all of these things that have never been available before. Um, and for me, this is my big pivot out of B2C because I've been in B2C my whole career, um, very similar to you. And, and uh, it sucks. I'm so... Um, you know, B2B to C, I should say. So now I'm in B2B to B, um, which is <laughs> so much more fun and um, a lot more freeing in my opinion. And so I'm, I'm having a great time. And uh, I ended up here because I was the lucky person that Lindsay had emailed when she had the idea to found this company and she was looking for a technical founder. And she thought yeah. for some reason that I could be that. And I, <laughs> I quickly was like, no, yeah. but... <laughs> You're like, I, no, but I can, I can do the business stuff. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it worked. It's worked out great. I mean, we've had a, a lot of, uh, of success. We've had a lot of fun. We're almost two years old now, so uh, it's been a it's been a wild ride. So, in your in your role, are you still? Do you, it sounds like you're still doing demos for for prospects, and you're still managing some sales cycles, or is it more leadership focused at this point? I know you're also trying to grow the team, so. FYI, anybody listening, there's, I, I believe there's a couple of AE opportunities open at Casted. So reach no, out. We, if we just closed them up. Oh, you guys filled it. Okay. Well, keep, keep the, uh, the wire open because I'm sure you'll be hiring more in the future. Absolutely. And yeah. So, uh, yeah. So tell me about, so now that you've got a couple people in place, is your role changing here in the near future to more of the, you know, stereo or not, not stereotypical, but traditional manager, or are you still involved in some of the deal cycles that the company's going through right now? Um, good question. So I've actually been kind of in the stereotypical manager role since uh, last January. So we've, we've had okay. a few AEs for a while. We just kind of expanded that team. Um, we doubled them, uh, in fact. But um, no, I try to stay involved in sales cycles still. I think that um, especially, you know, we kind of fancy ourselves a, a category creator. It'd be really hard for me to manage the team if I didn't understand the um, relatively unique objections that we'd be getting in sales cycles. So I like to get involved but you know, for the most part, like my, my team's just really good at closing deals and they're, they're really good at reporting back and logging, um, all the data that I need in CRM. So, um, I kind of pop in and out of some bigger deals. I'll, I'll jump into like a really standard ICP deal every once in a while to make sure that, you know, our pitch is, is perfect. Um, but I haven't, I haven't really closed any deals in a, in a while. Uh, so I'm really interested. I want to dig into something you just said. Uh, you said you have interesting objections from, from your prospects. Give us an example of what like a unique or interesting objection would be in oh, your man. world. If you have one off the top of your head, I just, yeah, I heard yeah. that. I was like, I, cause most, most companies I've been at, it's, it's pretty much the same standard set of objections, you know, well, we don't have the it resources or, well, we don't have the budget to do this, or, you know, this isn't the right time or whatever the like standard objections are. So I'm always curious to hear in other industries, what people say as like a, a blocker for moving forward. Yeah, I guess unique might've been like a, an overstatement, right? Budget is the big, <laughs> is the big objection. And the reason that budget is such a, it's unique in this world for me is that we are kind of um, compared to other podcasting tools. And those podcasting tools are made for the likes of your podcast, Jesse. You you can pay $15 a month um, for a really good podcast host. And you likely do. Um, we aren't that. Um, yeah. We are a whole marketing platform built on podcasts. And because of that, um, you know, our price is higher. We start in the we start in the low five figures. So when we come into some some deals and we're you know we're we're having those conversations of like, hey, here's the price. They're like, oh, well, I thought you'd be fifty dollars a month. I'm like, who's sending sales reps to a fifty dollar a month deal? Like, who? What? What? Um, yeah. But the, the interesting thing is, people try to compare us apples to apples to something that has no like even after they see the demo and they know what they have, they're just like, oh, well, we just thought you'd be whatever. It's like um, if you've ever seen um, in Amish country, right? Like a horse-drawn carriage, they've got two wheels, they move yeah. forward, they've got all those things. And then you're saying, well, that car is so much more expensive, but it also has wheels. And it's like, well, it's not the same it's thing. The same thing. <laughs> just because they both have wheels doesn't mean that these are the same devices and therefore the price must be the same. That's a great, uh, that's a great analogy. Do you use that in, in actual conversations? The, the Amish analogy? 
You know that I do. I, I had it like ready in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that that sounded like one that's been used before. That's, I, I, but it makes perfect sense. Awesome. So uh, cool. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you've got a couple of AEs. What, uh, isn't it? This might be an interesting four AEs. Okay. <laughs> See, I didn't realize that. I thought, I thought you guys were still kind of in the scaling process. You didn't have, uh, reps in place. No, we're always scaling, Jesse. Always on. scaling. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. What, uh, what are like, so, so your top AEs, when you think about what they're doing, what are they doing better than maybe the not top AEs? And I don't want you to pick on anybody specifically, but what are some of the behaviors you see from your top performers that others out there in the selling space can, can take home and, and try out in their own book of business? Hmm. So we sell the content marketers for the most part, most part. So um, the interesting thing about content marketers is they are wildly underserved, underserved from like a technology perspective. And then internally, they are asked to do more than most people in the marketing team. Like there are more content, more blogs, more podcasts, more everything. And, you know, the, the conversation that we had really early on <clears throat> that I think is really interesting is like the... The VP of marketing and the CMO are just saying like more AI, more automation, more yeah. recommendations, but like content can't necessarily always be automated. Like there's a human element, like you've still got to write shit that's relevant. You still have to do totally. things that, you know, yeah, that like makes sense. Like tell stories, like you can't rely on AI to tell a story. Right. So my best reps just shut the hell up and they, they mm. listen. They ask questions. They allow the content marketer to to vent of which they deserve to be able to do because they are just tasked with some serious bullshit. And so my best reps, honestly, like I think that I, we've probably had a sale close probably. And I don't, I don't I, this is like an advertisement for a gong. We probably need to use them more um, or at all. <laughs> but we, we probably have had a sale close where my reps talked for 25% of the time. Wow. And, and I would say that that's when I look at a sales cycle and I hear one of my reps really pitching, I know we're going to lose. Hmm. That's interesting. 25%. Cause I don't know what they say. Like the benchmark is for where, how much a, a rep should interact. I think it's 46. Is it? Wow. So that's like less than half. It's I think like, so. It's like half of that. Uh, but that makes sense though, because it, like in this industry, you know, again, like you said, it's content marketing, it's being able to, to just, yeah, let the, let the prospect sort of walk themselves into, to what they want and not have the just over sharing, over talking from the rep side. That's really interesting. So mm -hmm. you guys, you guys use gong, uh, do you use it pretty, it sounds like you don't use it pretty religiously, but it's there and, and you're measuring it, you know, you're measuring some of these things somewhat. No, we actually don't use gong. <laughs> oh, okay. So I want I want to know those things, but no, I don't. We don't use Gong. So the twenty five percent of the conversation is is you just a kind of a gut gut a, a gut feel. Pulled yeah, it right out of my ass. Yeah. There you go. Okay. No, no worries. But that that makes sense. So like a quarter of the of the demo or something there, maybe not a demo, but a quarter of like a discovery call. Uh, the 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 rep is actually pitching or speaking, and the rest is really gathering information to help you know, move mm -hmm. the deal along in the next call. Okay. That makes sense. What else, what else are your top reps doing that, you know, others can implement that, that might help them hit their numbers or crush their goals, whatever. Yeah. So we actually just, so our end of quarter was, 
um, a few days ago. So Friday was our end of quarter. So uh, we've offset quarters. So um, October, we closed more, more individual logos than we've ever closed before. And this was a team effort. So this is not an individual rep, but pushing, like actually just pushing, like asking for the sale is, is what a top performer does. Hey, this is my end of quarter. Do we think we can get it signed by this time? Yes or no. And then redirecting effort based on that answer. If the answer is no, thanks so much. Like I'll reach out next week and we can coordinate, we can re-coordinate, right? Yeah. But if the answer is yes, okay, great. I want to make sure this is a guarantee. What do I need to do? And like those, those types of, um, it's occurring to me that this podcast might just be like helping you make, like be a way better salesperson. And I love this as like a, as as a tool for you to like write down notes, be like a shit, I need to be doing this. This is literally why I'm starting it is selfishly. I'm, I, I started it cause I wanted to like pick the brains of the top minds in, in SaaS sales. And, and I'm totally fine admitting that here on the air. I love it. Uh, cause I, and again, I'm not like currently monetizing the podcast or anything like that. This is really just a ch- one. It's a chance for me to keep connected with people like yourself who I've worked for. And I know is a, you know, star badass seller, uh, but then also to sort of get pretty much the the top tips and tricks from the top teams uh, in the business, uh, but also to share those with other people. Cause I know, you know, I get a lot of questions from pe- just random people on LinkedIn. I was telling uh, another guest this, that I have a lot of people that just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I've been pretty active in, in the sales subreddit too. So I get a lot of mm. PMs on Reddit from people that are like, you seem to know what you're talking about. And I'm like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I shared one thing that worked for me and now I have a ton of different upvotes, you know, upvotes and PMs from that one post. I believe they're called updutes on Reddit. Updutes. <laughs> Yeah, I get a lot of updates. I have a lot of karma on Reddit. Uh, so I was like, I should just start a podcast and it should be that. It should just be, how do we get the top minds that that do the job? Because I think there's a lot of podcasts out there that have some, and this is not me knocking these, by the way, because there's a lot of great leadership advice to be shared too. There's a lot of content out there for if you're trying to scale a sales team or you're trying to build an award-winning sales process that will make your VCs really happy. I'm not knocking it. I think there's totally a need for it. And I listen to a lot of that stuff too, but I didn't feel like there was a great podcast out there where reps can be totally honest about what they do every day and share what works Mm. and what their best practices are. So that's like, like what you just shared was a great example of one that I'm probably going to implement because that is, you know, truthfully something that I still struggle with, which is how do you get that commitment? How do you pin down a timeframe for getting a deal done and then not having it slip into the next quarter, next month, whatever it is, like, how do you manage that span of control in, in actually getting deals done? It's one of the hardest things I think reps have to, to figure out. And it takes many years to really master that skill of proper forecasting, being able to ask the hard questions. Cause it, it is a hard question to ask a prospect, which is, Hey, is there any chance it's going to get done before the end of our fiscal year? If so, what's it going to take? If not, when is it going to get done? They're hard questions. They're pointed questions. Nobody wants to make their prospect feel uncomfortable or weird. It shouldn't the way, you know, depending on how you ask it, it shouldn't make your prospect feel weird or uncomfortable, but uh, you know, that, yeah, that's a great example of something that I, you know, could probably be better at. And I think a lot of the listeners will certainly benefit from is being able to just practice that. And nobody teaches this stuff either. If, if, and maybe I'm wrong about that. You can challenge my thinking there, 
but I know in my early career, and maybe that's because I was mostly at startups and everyone's just moving too fast and mm -hmm. too focused on just getting the outcome, which is what you have to do. I will, you know, I didn't start my career at Oracle or Salesforce or Dell or something like that, where I might've gone through 20 hours of different sales training certifi uh, certifications. I didn't have that. So I never really had a lot of formal direction on like how to forecast or, you know, how to, how to like get the span of control in your deals and how to have those conversations with prospects. You just kind of have to figure it out. And I know you're the same way. You didn't start your career off at, at SAP or Oracle. So most of what, you know, you've just figured it out by probably falling on your face a couple of times and misforecasting. I've missed a few forecasts. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. But it's the best teacher. Like that failure is the best teacher in my opinion. Uh, so again, you know, kudos to anybody who starts their career off at Oracle and gets a, you know, 30 hour uh, training session at some point about how to forecast properly. Good for them. For me, that wasn't the, the experience. I had to just sort of fail a couple of times, have some really awful conversations with management of, oh yeah, I put this in commit and it didn't actually happen. Uh, I now need to go back and, and, you know, really hone in my process there to make sure that doesn't happen again and get better at asking those questions. So I think that's a great share. And it sounds well, like it's working pretty well. Yeah. And, and again, this is why I'm so relieved to be out of B2B2C and be at the B2B2B because when we're talking to marketers and we are asking those questions, they understand exactly why. They, they yeah. know. And, and like, not that B2C companies don't know, I, I, you know, but you only buy software so many times at a B2C company. Like Kendra oh, Scott is only buying so much in their tech stack, right? And right. so... And maybe it's a first time buyer at Kendra Scott and I'm not to pick on Kendra Scott there just top of mind, but, um, you know, maybe they don't, they don't recognize that you're not being pushy, but you actually report to someone and a board and that someone reports to the CEO and that CEO reports to a board and so on and so forth. But I think in, in B2B to e-sales, what you have is you're selling to someone who also sells and they totally get it. And so it, it, it should free people up to ask that question a little bit more freely and, you know, it, we talk a lot, we, we, we're offset quarters um, because of experience that you and I had together, Jesse, trying to close deals on the 31st of December. It's not a, it's not a fun time to wrap up your nope. Q4 on a holiday. Yep. So we, we offset our quarters the moment that we founded the company. We just said, nope, we're not doing that. We know better. The beauty of that though is your end of quarter now is October. Most people's end of quarter Q3 is September. So in September, they're, they're making the assumption that you need to close out your quarter and you're asking them to close by this month. But in October, you're asking people to close at the end of your quarter. So you have that kind of hard ask kind of built in in some cases. Yeah. And then now November, normally the middle month of Q4, you get to go in and say, hey, I want to start my quarter strong. Can you help me? Ooh, that's really good. So we do that too here. We have a staggered annual or fiscal year where our fiscal year actually just ended last week, which is really nice because it means we don't have to try to push Q4 through the holidays and have, you know, December 31st be the last day where nobody's in the office. Uh, I'm really a big advocate for that pretty much for any business model, B2C or B2B. It just makes sense. But I never thought of it from the perspective of like that extra leverage uh, of saying, hey, look, you know, now I, like the timing should should work out where this could help me. But but it also shouldn't be a problem for you because it's not like it's not like you're ending your fiscal year right now or anything. So that's pretty cool. So when does your when is the start finish for you guys? Is it you, we start we start February one and we end on uh, January 31st. Cool. Yeah, that's perfect. 
So you, then you end with January, uh, which can usually be, pro I'm sure, especially for you guys being, being that you sell to marketers and budgets likely get re-upped. Started, you know, yep. Started January 1st. So you got new budgets and it's probably a little easier to finish really strong in January. No, I think that's a really smart idea. And yeah, back in the day, I've worked for a couple of companies that followed just the standard calendar year. And it's always so stressful, like December 26th, you're back in the office trying to make sure you finish out the year strong versus now uh, I have a little bit of, you know, of a buffer because our quarter, our next, our Q1 will end January 31st. So That's I've got nice. time to, to stack up my number for the month of January and still have a really good quarter. You know, another, another, like if we're just sharing sales tips here that, that I really like and that um, we've kind of adjusted. So I, I really like the value selling kind of framework. Um, yeah. So shout out to Chad Sanderson, who's a, a big, uh, I'm a big fan of, I would call him a friend. I don't know if he'd call me a friend. He'd probably call me a pain in the ass, but, um, <laughs> he, he actually has a podcast called the, the, the B2B revenue exec podcast, I believe is what it's called. Again, I'm a pain in his ass cause I'm not even telling you the right name of his podcast, but value, the value selling framework is great. Um, specifically for me, because I really like the, the plan letters. I really like the, the mutual action plans that you can put together. Mm. But what I found was I made a slight tweak for us. And, and what I, what I liked about the, the plan letters is you, you work backwards from value. So you, you actually shoot, like, let's say we signed today, I would actually start my plan letter like January 15th and say, okay, that's the point at which you'll find value on our platform. And I'll work back from there to the contract start date. When do you sign all of those things to push you to signature so that you know that if you sign today, January 15th, when you're going to see that value, what I used to do, and this, again, Chad's going to kick my ass because this is probably not the right way to look at it. But what I used to do is send that plan letter over and say, like, does this look good as a plan? If so, like, let's move forward. Are, are there any changes that you'd like to make? And it's almost like asking um, for forgiveness rather than permission. What I found yeah. is what, what's more effective is to say, this is the plan. If I don't hear anything back, I'm sending you the contracts. I'm, I'm going to assume, I'm going to take your, your, um, your silence as implicit agreement. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to move forward. And then we, we leverage it from there rather than asking for you to approve it because approval is effort. Receiving mm. contracts is not. So, um, we, we kind of changed that up and it's, it's worked a few times and referencing yeah. the plan letter, like, let's say you send it to a prospect and, and, and they email you back and, and whether or not they reference the plan letter, but then you get to that that date, that that November twelfth or whatever, when they're supposed to sign, and, and and you're able to send that that email, that LinkedIn message to say, hey, it looks like we're a little off plan. What mm. you know, what's a better date? I'm going to move it to the nineteenth, but does that make any sense? And it's a little less pushy of a way to say like, will you get it in this week? Will you get it in this month? But rather, like you're actually building them a plan, a real plan. You can't just bullshit yeah. it, but like it actually has to be to value for them. And I love, I just love that 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 thought process. And another thing I love just to praise value selling a little too much. Um, I, I subscribe to the, their framework, not wholly, but, but pieces of it that I just really adore are um, rather than business value, rather than like, oh, you'll see an ROI on this date or 10X or whatever. There's right. a personal value aspect. And especially when we're selling into content marketers, like this, this underserved, overworked, just the workhorse of the marketing team. When we're selling to these individuals, 
I like to think of like, what's going to get you recognition? What's going to get you your promotion, your bonus? What's going to get your VP of sales to say, holy shit, you did an amazing job, Jesse. Like that, I cannot believe it. We got to talk about this in the next all hands. And so I usually write my plan letters from personal value rather than business value. I don't care when they get their 10X ROI. That's not what the content marketer is comped on. That's not what they're praised on, like, et cetera, et cetera. I want to say, what's going to get you your recognition? What's the point at which your CMO is going to say, wow, Jesse, maybe content marketer practitioner is not where you should be. Maybe we should be building a, a real career path for you. Wow. And the best part about that is backtracking with those people to say what's going to get you promoted, what's going to get you the bonus, what, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is a lot better because you really are advocating for them. As long as you're sincere, mm -hmm. if you're like a sociopath, then like they're <laughs> going to call you out pretty quickly. But um, if you're really the sleazy sales guy, then, uh, you know, they're going to kick you right out. But if you're like a, a sincere salesperson, and you'll notice sales guy versus salesperson because this, these white dude, white sales dudes are always the sleazy assholes. <laughs> but if we get away from that into like real sales humans who are there advocating for their customer, advocating for their, their people, I think that you're going to really yeah. see growth. No, I love the mutual action plans. And that's something I've implemented fairly recently. And if, if anyone listening wants a template for that, I have a, a spreadsheet template. That's like a general universal one that I made just for the hell of it for some reason. Cause I'm, I'm that way I'm, I'm bored <laughs> and I, I build mutual action plan templates that are universal. Uh, so hit me up if you're interested in a, in a template, but yeah, it basically asks, you know, it, it kind of puts into place certain dates, milestones, steps in the process. It's again, back to what I was saying earlier, it's not something that I ever had any formal training on. It's cool that I, I guess I didn't realize it was part of the value selling. I couldn't remember. I've, I've, I have, you know, now gone through some different sales, formal trainings, like, like Sandler and, and value selling and, and command a message. So I couldn't remember which one that one came from, but uh, yeah, it's super helpful. And back to your point about when you want to get a prospect to act you know, having like a, Hey, look, you, we all agreed on this being the time frame and the plan. Uh, so what's going on, you know, like it's just so much easier to follow up when everyone agrees on what the next steps are now, your flair of being able to tie it into what's in it for me. That's something that I'm still struggling with. That's something that I still haven't quite mastered in my role because I'm still trying to figure out my prospecting contact, uh, or my, you know, kind of my buyer persona, what is in it, you know, what is in it for them? What, how do they benefit? I know with marketers, I had that pretty pinned down in previous roles. Like I knew exactly how marketers were incentivized and comped and what the, the goals were because it's so aligned with sales typically. Uh, I sell now to kind of operations and contact center leaders and CX leaders and things like that. So it's a little bit more nuanced and it's a newer, you know, some, in some cases, a newer role or persona in a business. So it's a little bit more gray area in terms of what their KPIs are and what their bonus structure looks like or what their career path looks like and things like that. So I love that you do that. That's really, really interesting that you kind of bring the, the mutual action plan always back to Hey, this is for your, you know, this is for your benefit and I'm trying to help you succeed because there's real stuff at stake for you as a professional. And I want you to get your bonus. I want you to get your promotion. Uh, I want you to move down the next, you know, onto the next project that's going to make you look awesome. Uh, so very cool that you do that. Yeah. Big fan of action plans. Uh, I guess, you know, tell us how, you know, as far as the, what's in it for me, I'm sure it just comes down to, you know, marketers so well, you've done a bunch of research, you've spent so much time with marketers that you have, and, and then you've kind of been one in a lot of ways in the past. It, would you say that's how you did it? Cause I, I've always believed that if you can really understand the day-to-day -day of your prospect, uh, you will absolutely sell more if you know, uh, like the ins and outs of their job 
almost as well as they do. Is that how, you know, would you say that's how you got to that point or was there any other resources? I would never say that. No. <laughs> well, first of all, my, my head of marketing would just kill me if she, if she thought that I was saying that I've in a past life been a marketer in any way. Um, honestly, the magic bullet here, I just ask, I, I, and, and that's, that's really, um, really a requirement. Like my, their personal value might not be a promotion. It might not be a raise. It might be that they get to spend an extra hour a day with their kid. It might be that they, um, get to not worry on their next vacation to the Alps, right? Like it could be anything. I remember one, the, the, one of the first times that I really leveraged, um, the action plan based on personal value alone, we were talking to a CMO of a, of a, of a large retailer. So back, back in the day and his value, his personal value was not a promotion because he was the CMO. It wasn't a raise. He, he, he's pretty well compensated. It was that he really wanted to go on vacation with his wife and two children. He wanted to go snowboarding. He was based in in Colorado. He wanted to go up into the mountains and not have to think about his phone. And he felt that our technology could actually allow him to do so. That's personal value. And and you can't get to personal value, in my opinion, by making assumptions about their day-to-day because that's not personal. That's business value. Yeah. You know, saying promotion or raise, like that's... Those are examples, but like yeah. what's specific to Jesse Woodbury as personal value and what's specific to, to me as personal value, they're going to be wildly different. It's not always going to be a raise or a promotion. At some point, you can't get promoted anymore. Like what if you're selling to a CEO? Yeah. They, they, yeah. Can't, get a, they can't get a raise without the board and the board's not going to care about this one tech that you bought. They can't right. get a promotion. Uh, it's like they're they're tippy, tippy top. But I know that our CEO, she, she really values time with, with her three boys and like, what if we could do something to give her some of that time back? She would love yeah. that. She would love that. And that would be personally valuable to her. Um, spending time with her husband would be personally valuable to her. So if yeah. I can frame it in a way, realistically, again, like you, you can't bullshit it. You have to be like, if you can't solve the problem, that's okay. Like find a different way to attack the the problem, but don't make up a solution that, that doesn't exist. But if we can actually help save her two hours on a Friday afternoon, well, damn, we might, we might have something in place here. We might, we might have an opportunity. Yeah. I love that. It's just so simple because it's just ask, you know, ask that thing. But I know when I was younger and earlier on in my career, it was just so hard to ask the real questions for some reason, because you're just still, you know, figuring it out, figuring out what your boundaries are, but you're exactly right. That the easiest way to get the information you're trying to get is just ask the question, but asking it in a nice way. Like, obviously, like you said earlier, not in a slimy salesy way or a, you know, used car salesy way or something like that. You have to genuinely ask and, and genuinely want to know. Uh, and if you can be genuine about how you ask it, people are, are not trying to be gatekeepers of their own, uh, you know, mission statements or anything like that. I mean, people, people want you to know, especially in enterprise buying, because when they're making a software purchase, uh, especially if it's at the enterprise level, it, it does affect their day-to-day. It does affect their status within the company. It is a big decision. And usually it's not one person solely making the decision. It's, it's a group of people, but the people that are involved in that decision I think what should be totally happy, you know, divulging what their ultimate goal is and, and what their, uh, you know, what's in it for them. Well, yeah. And, and I think you raise a good point. Like when you were young in your sales career, I was also young in mine, right? We kind of came up together in, in different paths and maybe I was a, a year or two ahead of you. But uh, if I think back to our VP of sales back in the day, Barry Clark, 
my first deal that was ever laid at my lap, which I believe that you laid it at my lap. Um, I didn't generate that opportunity on my own. I closed it. That's fantastic. But it's also kind of not because you don't get the failure that you need early on. And one thing that that Barry had said to me um, after I'd lost a couple after that was like, if I were closing 100% of deals, then I wasn't going to be here anymore anyway. Because I, I'd get priced out and I'd, people, I'd get poached and like all these things. Yeah. Um, but like the point was that he was trying to make was it, it's about a third. You're going to close about a third of your deals. And if you know you're going to lose two out of three deals, it kind of relaxes you a little bit. Like it kind of, you can start to ask those questions. And if you're not a right fit, you don't have to force it. And it took me a while to learn that. I didn't like learn it immediately when he told me. It was one of those things where you drinking whiskey about five years later, and you're like, "Oh, okay." But it, it, you know, I was I was a little freed up to think, "Okay, I can ask this this question really freely." And if I'm not a fit, yeah. that's okay. And if that's okay, then I can ask this to people that I am a fit for, and they're gonna feel like I'm being genuine because I am. And yeah. I think that really early on in our careers, when we were both like, oh my gosh, we got to win. We got to win. It's a bunch of fucking douchebag salespeople. It's this bro sales culture. I swear, to, I, I'm, I'm going to all die on this hill. Like this bro sales culture that exists, uh, yeah. just this like pale male and stale sales dudes who go in and post the same shit on LinkedIn. They go into these deals that they they pat themselves on the back when they had a Solcon on SDR and their VP of sales all in that deal and won't want to congratulate any of those people for doing the hard work. That's exactly yeah. the persona that you assume you have to be going into sales. When you're freed from that, when you realize it's a team effort, when you realize that you can lose a few and still be an amazing sales rep, you can be the best sales rep by losing, seriously. Like, so I, we've talked a lot about at our company recently about potentially measuring sales performance, not just by close rate, not just by, um, ACV, not just by revenue brought in, but what is your net retention? Mm. Like as a sales rep, what did, what happened in year two? Cause we do expect our sales reps to stay longer than two years. I, I wholeheartedly believe that we're, being, we're, we're building a culture, we're, we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're compensating correctly, we're doing all these things, but like, I wanna know who my best reps are long-term because in SaaS, you don't even make your money back until year two. Totally, no, that's, that's really cool. That's kind of how we do things here too. We're very much incentivized for long-term deals. And, and it's funny, we were just having the conversation today on our team about, we need to really weed out those that are not a good fit from a customer standpoint. And don't be afraid to turn away a deal, even if it's right there in the bag, if you know deep down it's going to be a customer that's going to cause problems. Or if you know it's a customer that's not the perfect fit that we're looking for, or it's not going to be a multi-year customer for us. And you were probably one of the first people that I witnessed that. And I remember being just completely like, wait, what are you doing, man? What, what? Cause you were on a call with, I don't remember who it was, but I remember you basically recommended another technology to him on the fly. And I had probably sourced the meeting. So I was like, come on, we're going to close this. this livid. You were livid. And then in the middle of the call, you're like, mm, no, we're not a good fit. You'd be much better off with this technology, a competitor. And I was like, wait, 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 you just recommended a competitor. 
And you were like, yeah, but it wouldn't have been a fit. They would have been a just complete dog shit customer. That would have been a lot more work for the company, for me, for everybody else on the team. And it's just, it, it you know, it wouldn't have been conducive to a, a good business. Like it's, it would, it would have been a bad business decision to close the deal out of, you know, just wanting to close the deal and get it done. So I wholeheartedly agree with that. I also agree that this idea that there's one type of person that can succeed, especially in, you know, enterprise B2B sales uh, at this level, it's bullshit. Anyone can succeed. You don't have to be the jock from high school. I wasn't, I absolutely wasn't. And, you know, I've found a lot of success in this space, just being genuine and having empathy and showing people that I want to help them solve problems. I'm not, you know, that persona that again, that just, you know, the, the grab assing, like walk around strutting my stuff. Like I, I don't do that. I'm pretty introverted in the big scheme of things. I really am. Most people don't, don't believe that about me, but uh, I'm not like the, I'm usually not the loudest person in the room. I'm a lot more, you know, introverted and analytical about things. Um, so there's tons of different types of personas that can succeed in this business. You don't have to look the same way. You don't have to act the same way. Uh, I really think this is a space that should be open to really anybody who has the desire to help companies solve big problems. That's what we do. And it's fun. It's rewarding. It's lucrative. And it should be open to anybody who, who wants that opportunity. It should not be a freaking, you know, boys club or whatever you want to call it. So I totally agree there. And uh, yeah, man, you were one of the first people that I saw that, that implemented that of just being totally genuine and telling somebody, eh, the competitor is probably a better fit for you. So, and, and, and they respected it. That was what was, that was the surprising part was I didn't know how that was going to resonate with the prospect and the prospects like, wow, no one has ever been honest with us. You're awesome. And, you know, I've had that now happen to myself in my own deals a couple of times. And what's funny is they'll usually swim back later on. Like, like I'll get the same prospect come back that'll come back to me and say, Hey, we weren't the right fit at this time, but we, you made such an impression on us by just being genuine and not trying to, you know, sneakily earn our business or, or slime, you know, in a slimy way, you didn't try to convince us that we needed to move forward with you. And now we actually want to work with you and we feel like we're a good fit and here's why. And that's obviously a much easier deal to close than convincing somebody that's not a fit to, to sign on. Yeah. I mean, like the, it's the suddenly age old adage of, you know, sales is just person to person. And so what if you're not trying to sell a company anymore and you're actually trying to help the, the individual, and like, here's the thing. I, I, I know exactly what still you're, you're talking about. And I'm not going to call them out, but yeah. um, I'll call it a, a win that I had. Like like my first my first win at Smarter HQ because we're going that far back. We skipped a whole fun part of my life. Um, but the, my first win there, I sold um, to a company that's that's now been acquired. It was a, it was a retailer for boots and all this fun stuff. But I, I, my, my sales contact there, his name was Ryan Heft. I'm going to send him this... Um, the, this podcast. Um, and what happened was he, he was the person I sold to, not the company, not any of the other pieces of it. And the beauty of that is even after I left Smarter HQ, I, I, Ryan and I stayed in contact and, and I, I find Ryan to be this, this awesome, very interesting person. And I had the opportunity to sell to him again at my next company, which, which was Amarsis. And we, he, he was at Keen now, he's at a much larger company. So Keen Footwear and, um, I got my opportunity very early on to just call him up and just say, Hey, like, what are, what are you up to? I think I have something for you. And it was a slow burn and we, we got there eventually. But the, the beauty of that was that Ryan trusted that I wasn't going to sell him something that um, wasn't a good fit. And I, I, I wouldn't have um, 
because that contact means so much to me. And so I, I think that if you just take a step back, don't sell to companies and you sell to the actual humans, which is, yeah, this is, this is how sales bros get made. They just repeat the same shit that's like posted a thousand times. Like sales is about people. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, but I'm doing that right now. So sales is about people. And, yeah. um, but like, if you just do that, it's, it's, it's not that hard. Just like be a good person. I mean, be customer support, be BCS, be like, it, it's all the same. Like no one is in a, well, I'm going to backtrack the statement the moment I say yeah. it. No one's in a field to not serve others, right? Like, like that's the joy of sales. Like, that's the joy of being a support person. It's the joy of building product. You get to build something cool that people use and love. And selling should be the same way. It's like you're selling something that that is a joy to use that people love. So that if you leave, which you will, yeah, you can go sell something else that's also a joy. Now, I say that, and I know a bunch of salespeople that are just in it for the money. And they're they're terrible. They do no. They they don't care about the account after it's sold. All these things. So I say everyone, but like I don't necessarily mean everyone. <laughs> nice. No, man. I'm I'm totally behind it. And this is super valuable. I think for anyone listening, who's especially those who are starting out and are trying to mimic what they think success is in this space. You know, dig deeper. Is I think the advice is like actually dig deeper and be real. Be real. Don't, and, and again, maybe this, maybe I'm starting a bunch of broisms by saying things like be real and think about your customers. Hustle, grind. People, hustle. Yeah. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, I don't buy into that stuff. I did early on. And what I found, you know, being sort of vulnerable here is it just didn't, it didn't really, one, it didn't help me hit my, my targets and it didn't make me happy either. So I was What if hitting your targets wasn't yeah. the only measure of success? I'm all for that. And I think, you know, where I'm at now that like, there is a lot more of a holistic approach besides just what number is inside Salesforce next to my, next to my name. Um, but give us some examples of what some other, well, you did earlier, you said that you guys are looking at sort of net retention and some other things, mm -hmm. but what other ideas have you guys thrown out? Yeah. And this, this, this isn't all going, I mean, we're not just innovating on the sales side over and over and over again, right? Like I'm not yeah. going to claim that I've made any of this up and, and some of this is theoretical. Like just what if it wasn't? And um, yeah. we look at a few things. I have a, I have a plat, I'm, I'm another call out. You should get compensated for some of these call outs that I'm making gong. Um, but now I'm going to call a, a company that um, I actually use called Canopy. And it's a sales like leadership platform. And it actually gives you like insight into your reps beyond just like close one. So like who's my best at managing their sales cycle from start to finish? who is reliable at every stage of the sale. So like when, you know, something's in a qualified to buy stage, what's their um, conversion rate on qualified to buy all the way through versus their conversion on contracting? Like who's putting shit in contracting that should not be there. And so uh. it helps me see some things about my reps that aren't necessarily just about their close rate and the, the or not just their close rate, but the, the number of, of uh, dollars that they bring in, right? And for me, it helps so much. We had a, a really, so far, we've had a really lopsided year. I had one rep close an enterprise deal, um, our first and only so far enterprise deal in our time being a startup. He got a lot of revenue for that, a lot of revenue to his name. On the leaderboard, he's number one, and he's a great rep. But I have this other rep who's also amazing, amazing. But he, he he's technically last in the, on the leaderboard because our, our two new reps aren't on uh, quota yet. Mm-hmm also amazing, just different 
different types of reps. And, and I know that it's discouraging for one of them to, um, to be low on the leaderboard, to not be number one. He didn't have the opportunity to sell Salesforce, right? Like he didn't have the opportunity. It wasn't in his, his territory. Yeah. But if I look at what he does, he has a shorter sales cycle. He has um, an incredible um, forecast rate. He's very good at forecasting. He struggles at um, calling his shots on close. And so the interesting thing about that, and like the whole point I'm trying to make is, if revenue is not the only single area that you're measuring for success, I think that I think that some of that bro behavior kind of fades away. Totally. And and that's what I that's what I want. And I and I think another big thing, and and this is like this is my hill to die on, and like all of this. I run a revenue team. I don't run a sales team. And I think that another way to make like these bros fade away is understand that like you're supported by a larger team. So our marketing team is on my revenue team. So if you yeah. think that you self-gen an opportunity, LOL, brand did it, <laughs> content did it, um, good joke. Why aren't you using more content? Because we measure that. If you yeah. think that after you close that deal that we've won, LOL, our CS team is working their ass off to make sure that mm. that deal is accurate, making sure that they grow, making sure yeah. that they retain, like all of these beautiful things. And we manage it under one umbrella for a reason. And um, not to just con continue to like blow smoke up your ass or whatever they, they say these days, <laughs> but we built our SDR team based on our relationship, yours and mine where um, there's no such thing as disrespect to SDRs at our company. There never will be. Um, oh, I love that. SDRs are one of our highest praised and that we're, we're paying them higher than, than SDR, any SDR gets paid in our city on purpose. That's awesome. Because it, it's so crazy to me that they're so stepped on and they fight so hard just to get paid for things mm -hmm. that they're like, they're, they're doing so much work. Like, <laughs> Qualified meetings, opportunities that fall into your lap. If you're a good rep and you have a short sales cycle, like one of my reps does, and he's really good at calling his shots, and you get opportunities just given to you yeah. after you've been fighting them for them for a year. Well, guess what? Like that's not you. You had a year to do it yourself. You didn't. Now these SDRs are doing it. And if you think even for a minute they're not working as hard, if not harder and doing more research and understanding better our, our ICP. Like that's crazy. So what we've done to make sure that we kind of fight this, this bro culture is we build a mm -hmm. revenue team. That revenue team is measured under a uh, centralized number. And we recognize not just through attribution, which is like a pretty standard boring way to look at things. Um, but we, we recognize that there's been a touch point on every account from every single person in that team, CS, marketing, SDR, sales rep, Solcon, you you name it. Yeah. And I think it humbles people to realize that you have those five touch points just on your team. And then let's not even like begin to talk about how product built all of that for you. <laughs> no, totally. No, I love that. I love the philosophy because it really is. It takes a village to 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 do these deals and yeah, it's no one person's heroics that ever scale a good business either. And, and then think about the prospect slash customer experience that you're getting on the other side. You're working with a, an entire army of people through all different parts of the journey. And you know, you've got a ton of, you know, the, the customers want to be multi-threaded too at their vendors that they partner with. 
you know, we always talk about being multi-threaded in deals on the sales side, but I, I think, you know, the modern buyer in 2020 and, and probably long before 2020, but, but especially now they want to know that if they're going to make an investment in something like a, a SaaS tool or a SaaS solution, that there's multiple contacts that they have multiple threads that they have with the vendor. Uh, and so I think the way you guys are designing, it sounds like it, it delivers that experience as well, because now, uh, the customer has all these different contact points. They know they're going to get the right person for the right problem that they might have throughout the implementation and, and as an ongoing resource. So, and then, yeah, it, I think it kind of humbles everybody else because then you wipe out that whole idea that sales is about heroics and about that one person that can, you know, continuously crush their number and it was all because of their efforts and they get all the credit and all the glory, which isn't the case, never the case. So that's really cool. And I'm not anti-salesperson to be clear. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just anti, I'm just anti the idea that they're doing it alone. And yeah. e even if you self-gen an opportunity by yourself, someone who was completely unaware of your brand, which by the way, has never happened. And you close them, like you still have product to think. You still have your CEO to thank. You still have the founders of your company to thank. And I, and I think that building a great full sales team, I mean, it just fights it. The stupid bell shit that you just ring it in the office and you like hit a gong every time. Like this is what happens when you allow the bro culture to get so, so far. And what happens is sales leaders now, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young, but like think of anyone who's, you know, 45 plus, like, they're a symptom of bro culture. So they're going to yeah. put up the bells. They're going to yep. put up the gongs and uh, they're going to allow you to ring it. Now, I'm not saying every older sales leader is like this. I know plenty who know that the first thing that you should do when you close the deal is thank everyone. But, it, it, you know, this is why we have this conversation. And I think sales culturally is in for a fucking shift. And if it yeah. doesn't real soon, SaaS sales will die. Pro like product-led mm. growth will like product-led growth is on the rise and it should be for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But I, but I think that, um, I've, I've read some things, um, which is like such a bullshit thing that is so anecdotal. I read some things. Um, <laughs> I'm an expert. I, I read it's on the internet. So there I read four, understand. four articles out of 1 million. <laughs> um, but you know, like that, that product-led growth will replace SaaS sales and it could, it could, yeah. if you, if you progress this terrible sales culture, I think in larger, um, sales cycles and larger ACV deals. Mm -hmm. I, I do think it could replace those well, you look at some, You look at something like Zoom, and I, at some point I wanna have a top player at Zoom on the show because I'm really curious. And this, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't know, I'm ignorant to it, but I would imagine because when we signed up for Zoom here at my company, it was, you know, we started with a couple of licenses that it was self-service. And then from there, it was like, hey, the, the team's growing. So we just start incrementally adding licenses in. At that point, like, we, I don't think they needed a, a strategic seller to help us scale out. And we're a small company, but I, I imagine it's the same process with even large brands, especially now with everybody working from home, was it was a pretty self-service, you know, uh, yeah, product-led growth and not, you know, not a, I, I would say for the most part, I don't imagine like a strategic Zoom seller really having to go that deep with most of their customer base. Maybe there's a few that need some handholding and some guidance and, and things like that in the front end. But I would say you're, I think you're thinking about it the right way. And I've seen the trend too, that is like the, 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 the top hot businesses right now in tech are 
you know, you self-service, you start out a couple of IT folks download it and start it out. And then it just grows on its own throughout the company as more people get licenses. And it's never like Mm -hmm. this formal process where a salesperson presents and sends a contract or a proposal over. I think there's a lot of tech out there. So I think you're exactly right that if we're not careful and we don't train people to think about it the right way, in the business, then yeah, this whole idea that sales is the hero and, and, and that businesses exist because of one or two dudes is, yeah, it's absolutely antiquated. Well, yeah. And I, I think about it, like you can't replace an amazing sales rep, an amazing, empathetic, knows your problem can, can show you your solution. You can replace a douchebag with an algorithm. No problem. Like no problem. Like, like I think about HubSpot, like HubSpot has, I, I believe, a hybrid model, and and I hope I know some people from HubSpot, so I hope they would correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I believe they have like PLG for like lower tier, and they have like some enterprise reps. Here's the thing about like lower tier, or even Zoom, to your example, like if if volume is the idea, if volume is the goal, you have two options. You can hire a used car salesman, and they will get you your volume. Now, all of your customers will have a very bad taste in their mouth, but they will get you your volume. Or you could do it through product-led growth. Yeah. Be- no, I think, because- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Because sorry. of that. Yeah, no, just like I, I, that was, I was taking a pause, but like because, because <laughs> of that, like I'd rather cut the douchebags out. Like, and so if, yeah. if you want, if you want like quality sales, like you need empathetic human beings. And if your quality, your most quality sale is still run by a douchebag, well, you just go be product led growth. Why not? Right. Why not? Exactly. What's, what's the value add in having the douchebag? Totally. It's, it's, it's the opposite. It's a value. Take, like, it's a value totally. take away. <laughs> like they're removing the, the, the glory of the sales cycle and, in, in, in a sense. Yeah. So something else I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and <laughs> I'm going to preface this by saying, I, I in no way wanted the po- want the podcast to be on the topic of politics or government or anything like that. This podcast is for sellers in the software space to improve their craft and get better. That said, you know, everybody's waiting for that butt there. But I like your style because I've if anybody follows you on LinkedIn and everybody should totally go and follow you on LinkedIn, I will post a link to your profile on the show notes. But the way that you know you you speak out against certain I don't want to call, I don't know if they're biases or just sort of like dogmas is like a good way to put it. But I see a lot of just stuff out on LinkedIn that people just basically share as gospel or as truth. Right. And I see you challenging that you've always done, as long as I've known, you've always challenged people's thinking in a big way. Uh, You don't just settle for whatever bullshit comes out of someone's mouth. You're always questioning where it's coming from, why someone thinks that way. And I do think it's an important skill to have as a seller and I do think that it's important skill to have in business. You should challenge and, and not be rude about it. And I, I think your style is really awesome because you're not rude about it. You're really good at crafting, uh, you know, a challenge to somebody's thinking in a way that's not disrespectful. It's not, uh, you know, arrogant in any way. So I wanted to kind of get some of your thoughts on this and, and to kind of add some specificity here. There was a post a couple of days ago. And just to take a step back, there was an email last week. I think it was last week or the week before from the CEO at Expensify, David Barrett, I think is his name. And if you didn't get the email, I, I feel like almost everyone that works in tech or, or in, and of course other industries got the email because apparently it got sent to 10 million of their user base, their end user base. 
Uh, so if you got the email from, from the Expensify CEO, David Barrett, you probably know it was pretty much, uh, you know, it's kind of a long form email on the topic of the upcoming election, which is tomorrow. And, uh, you know, his concerns about the end of our democracy and, and sort of an encouragement to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, and there's been obviously a ton, ton of mixed reaction on that email. And specifically, you posted on there was a, an account executive that was sharing, you know, something about how that was amateur hour or idiot hour or something like that, uh, that the, the CEO would do that and would basically put himself in a position where he now has to defend his stance to customers. But the way you responded was just like, it was brilliant. And I think regardless of wherever your political stance is at this time, it's obviously going to be a crazy election. I just think it's a good lesson. It's a, it's a good topic to cover right now, which is in this world, in this role, you're going to disagree politically now with your prospects, with your customers, with your leadership, with your colleagues, with your spouse in some cases. So I don't know, anything you can share with us about sort of how you approach these different situations? Because I do think going forward, it's going to be especially important to learn how to agree to disagree, learn how to challenge people in a polite way that's not going to start riots or cause, you know, uh, resentment or harm or anything like that to the relationship. And I have met a few uh, reps like yourself that can even get into this stuff with customers and, and, and prospects and still walk away feeling like, hey, we agree to disagree. We're still business partners. Stinks we don't see eye to eye, but it is what it is. That's how people are. What can you share like to someone who may be dealing with this in their workplace? Like, how do I, you know, how do I work with my CEO who's just totally on this side of the political aisle or totally believes this stuff? Or how does, how do I help my, you know, how do I work with this prospect who I just completely don't agree with? How do I still challenge them? And I think this is all applicable to sales too. Uh, it's not just about politics. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. That's probably like 20 questions that I just asked, <laughs> but what do you got for us, man? So I just want to preface, just like on the sake of being real, like I knew that you were going to ask this question. So I called my CEO and I was like, hey, so we're going to answer some political questions today. Um, and she was super supportive and we, we walked through some of them. Um, here, I, man, that is a complicated thing. So I, let's go back to the, just like the Expensify, LinkedIn, whatever. So yeah. I know who I am politically. Um, I'm not shy. Anyone who knows anything about me knows who I am politically. However, I'm also known to engage others on the other side of the aisle. Um, I, I don't even know why I'm like, I'm, I, I ask people why they voted for Trump. Like I do, I, I just, I ask, I'm curious. Um, I, I often think they're, they're wrong. That's my own bias. So I have plenty of those in my pocket. Um, the email from Expensify, um, it's got a lot of backlash. It's, it's got a lot of things. I liken it yeah. to... You know, there's this, there's this, there's, there's policies in place in the United States that treats, that treat businesses like humans, like individuals. Yep. And I don't agree with them, but they are in place. Now, if you're dealing with an individual, you're dealing with an individual's bias, you're dealing with their opinions, you're dealing with their personality. So for a company to come out and have an opinion and a personality, well, that's just par for the course. We can't decide suddenly that they're not allowed to be individuals, that they're not allowed to be people when we disagree with them. So yeah, I mean, this, this was a, an explicit, it was an outreach. It was a time that I believe their CEO thought was, was dire, whether you agree with that or not. Um, you know, my opinion of it is, is whatever it is, but 
if you were to go to Expensify over the last month, two months, it says Black Lives Matter, it says your vote counts, it says all of these things. They've been very clear. I think that people are, are, are their, their feathers are ruffled because the CEO came to them. It, it was yeah. implicit versus explicit, right? Now, I don't believe it was amateur hour because he said what he said. I, I, I believe, you know, I likened it, I believe in that post to um, Dan Price, who's the mm -hmm. CEO of Gravity Payments, Gravity. Yep. who, if, if you know anything about Dan Price, he has an agenda and he doesn't give a shit if you know it, if you agree with it, if you disagree with it, he's coming after you. I believe he's been on Congress. He, I think he's, he's testified to Congress about it. He, he has an agenda. Now, his is a little more acceptable, palatable, than the agenda. Yeah, because I think most people agree like wages, you know, should be fair, right? And that's sort of his premise is wages should be fair. And that's why he cut his salary mm -hmm. and and has distributed that across the whole company. And just for context, for anyone who doesn't know who Dan is, uh, he works for Gravity Payments. He's the CEO of Gravity Payments. And apparently there's a minimum wage there of 70K a year, I think is what it is. And that's part of that comes from him and his executive staff and others cutting their salaries and sort of equalizing the opportunity. And he's been in the media. I mean, you, you Google his name, you're going to find tons of different articles about, uh, you know, about that situation and about how he's responded to pushback and things like that. So yeah, just for context there. So, yeah, so I, and, and so I likened it to that, but I, I believe the only amateur hour if there was one, which I, I'm not necessarily sure there was, was that it was shared over email, which is just a shitty channel in general. So like, don't don't yeah. share stuff over email. And it was a little long for the channel. It was a long email. Otherwise, like I don't think it's bad. And I know people are like, I'm never using Expensify again. I bet he's okay with that, and that's okay. And so, in the sales process, like I said, I'm I'm not unclear. Like you found that pretty. I didn't hide it on my LinkedIn or anything like that. People can know my stance and and all of those things. I think as a sales rep, it's totally okay to know your line. Like, what yeah. am I okay selling into? What am I not okay selling into? The, the thing that I'll note, and I'll, and I'll actually give a really good example of, of me failing at this, is make sure that your line uh, aligns with other people in your organization yeah. if you're uh, going to take a hard stance. So in a, in a past life, I was, um, I was selling with uh, an individual, and, and um, she, was, she's, she is gay, and she was selling into a church that happens to on their front page have that um how gay people shouldn't be married and all these things so i'm i'm pretty livid like day one like that she's even being pushed into selling into this and like that this yeah. is even like a conversation that this company like that our company at the time was willing to have and like all these things so i i sent an email to our president and i'm just like this is bullshit like we shouldn't be doing this like the sales rep on this is being attacked blatantly by this this organization and you know, what, what ends up happening is um, the president tells me that I'm not the guy to, to run this deal. Fair. I definitely wasn't. I wasn't going to do it. I uh, had my yeah. line. But the sales rep, who I thought that I was aligned with, she was like, don't try to take my money. And it's like, <sighs> damn, good point. Like, I'm speaking for you on your behalf because I think that I'm this white knight. Um, yeah. And I'm not. So I knew my line and it, I, I was free within this company to have my line, but don't speak for other people's line. That's really good advice. Yeah. That it, it, and it's always surprising. You can't assume either. You just can't assume, you know, 
where someone's head's at. And that, that's what I've learned. And that's why for the most part, I stay out of it. I'm fortunate that, you know, I've mostly worked for companies that have also stayed out of politics. And I, ha- but, you know, I was always, I was curious kind of what the perspective would be if there was somebody at Expensify who doesn't align completely with the CEO's views. I guess to your point, maybe there's not anybody like that because they would have known a long time ago. And if maybe. it was really a problem, if it was really a problem, they could have moved on to another company as an employee, right? Yeah, and and you know the the interesting thing is, um, I don't know the political spectrum of of our company. I don't. I, I yeah. we have twenty people. I don't. I don't know what they think or what they feel uh, politically. I know some, but not all. And um, for us, it's more important to make sure that everyone has the ability to voice whatever they want or to not voice whatever they want. They can they can abstain from voicing whatever they want. And we do our best to stay out of those conversations. But if I, I think if anyone were to come around and say, hey, I was really uncomfortable because you guys are, you know, so one way or the other, that's a, that's a really good conversation. That's a really good gut yeah. check. Um, so I don't know that, that, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Expensify, a very large company, has someone yeah. who is a, a conservative or a Trump supporter there. Um, my hope is that they, as a company, kind of practice what they preach and allow those people to be who they are. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I am not by any means a Trump supporter. <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly liberal. Um, but I hope that anyone who um, disagrees with me or my company feels that they can be whoever they are. Um, we try not to make things too political. But if you want to have a political discussion, we open up some channels and you're allowed to come in yeah. or not. And, and you can abstain or not. And, and that's kind of the best way that I've seen it. Now, I will say as a sales rep, you want to win some deals, go find some people who agree with you ideologically uh, because they would love to bitch about whatever the thing is that you both agree on. And and that works. Yeah, I've found that. I've found that to be true as well. And you can usually, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to find out for the most part when you're working and you, especially when you're getting closer to your contacts and, and your prospects, like you're building that relationship. It's much easier to to sort of sift that out. And then, yeah, you're exactly right. It's one extra break the ice tactic. And I don't want to call it a tactic. It's just one extra way to break the ice with, with a prospect is certainly agree with their worldview in a big way. Now, all that said, I, I've probably sold, and again, it hardly ever comes up in my deal cycles, but it just seems like it's coming up more and more. And right now, especially, and maybe maybe this will all pass after the election. I hope it does because everybody seems LOL. so charged. <laughs> I know, um, but everyone seems so charged up right now and everyone feels like they have to say something. Uh, and so I just think it's it's important to, I guess, address that like there's going to be differences in, in opinion on things. And uh, yeah, you can, like my stance is I just kind of try to stay out of it, but I also respect people's stances that, like yourself who has, uh, uh, you know, an opinion and is vocal about it on social LinkedIn and totally incorporates that into who you are as a business person, as a, as a person person. So I don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, and I think I probably have some prospects too that lean on either side of the aisle. And for me, I'm just like, I'm indifferent, you know, I'm like, whatever, this is a business thing. Politics for the most part shouldn't you know, shouldn't impact it, although it does, uh, it, do, it impacts everything, but you know, it shouldn't impact this relationship. So yeah, man, think, it's interesting it's stuff. Like a philosoph- I think it's a, like a philosophical difference though, right? Like if, if we're really trying to get a, to personal value, if we're really trying to get to personal, like how do we help this human? You can't ignore things like politics and religion and um, you know, money and things like that. The, the, the three things that you're not supposed to talk about, the, was it politics, religion, and money? You, yeah. you can't ignore those pieces because you're not going to get to anyone's true value. Like if, if someone needs time 
that's money. If someone needs um, the ability to go um, worship at wherever they they want to worship, like that's that's a part of your sale as well. If 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 they're fearful because of the future of politics, or they're fearful because of the the present state of politics, like that's part of it. And and I think that it's okay to talk about. I think that you have to be empathetic. I think that. And I, and I know it's hard. I'm not exactly an expert at it. Um, and I, I think I gave up on empathy at one point this year when discussing politics. But, um, you know, it, it's something where you just have to understand kind of the human condition. And, and it, you, I, I'm on the other side. I think that you can't ignore it. I think you have to talk about it. And it, but you don't have to necessarily say your stance. You just have to, like, let people talk about it. I was actually in a deal last week with... Um, uh, a wonderful person from Canada who just sure. loved shitting on like our current state of things. <laughs> oh, and man. it was hilarious. And I totally agree with him on, on everything that he said, but it was, <laughs> it was one of those things where like, I think that we closed that deal because he and I got an opportunity to like really level set and like really yeah. be on the same page about like coronavirus, which is a political thing now somehow. And, and like the current state of how it's being handled and like joking about how he can go do things that I cannot. Um, so it was a, I'm not gonna say it was a fun conversation, but it, it was as prospects go, I felt closer to him than I felt than to most. Yeah, That's so interesting. Yeah, I just think that's going to be, that's not going anywhere, especially now. I just think more people are going to be vocal about this stuff uh, and, and more prospects are going to be vocal about it. And it is going to bleed into business more than it maybe has in the past. Whereas, you know, people were polite 10, 15, 20 years ago about talking about money, politics, religion. I think it now comes up more often because we're all so interconnected and because you're trying to build a really strong relationship with these prospects you do have to kind of build that courage to be able to have the conversations and, you know, broach the conversations without going too far in either way or, or without pissing somebody off, but it is, it's so delicate and it, it, it's, it's just, a, it's a tough thing, but it's, I, I think it's something that if you're a seller today, you have to be thinking about, you really do. Yeah. 100%. Can't, can't disagree with that. Well, awesome, man. I know we're coming up on about an hour and a half. Uh, I want to end on a, on a like value add note. So the, my last question for you is just going to be what's uh, you know, what's, what's one thing that a seller out there can do today to further improve their craft, get that next deal done, hit that next, you know, milestone financially uh, you know, share with us one big piece of wisdom that we can, we can part on. Yeah, I think we talked about a lot of them, but I, you know, one thing that I, one thing that I really am fond of is this isn't going to help you this year or next year. So like, I want mm. all salespeople to know this, but like sell to the, sell to the person like the, for real. And if that means the answer is no, and you know that they shouldn't buy your shit right now, that's okay. Cause yeah. they'll come back and they'll remember you as the person who actually was looking out for them. So it will make you more money in the long term to actually clearly identify someone's problems and sell to those problems. And if you can't solve them, move on because they'll come back. And then here's the best part. Sometimes they, those problems do align to your solution and you'll sell them today and yeah. tomorrow and next, like four years later. So, um, that's, that's my biggest advice. It's so lame. It's a, it's boring, normal advice. You know, here's my real advice. Go read your fucking marketing content. <laughs> Stop fighting with marketing. Stop fighting with your SDRs. Like go actually read the shit that's being put out into the public. That's how they found you. You didn't do this on your own. Go read yeah. the, the actual language that they learned. 
That's better. That's better than the other boring advice. No, both of those are great. And and sometimes it's the boring advice that 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 works and nobody wants to nobody you know, nobody could make a a thought leader sale uh LinkedIn post about your you know your first point because it is. It's too it just sounds too easy and too boring. Um No, that first that first point would get like a million likes on LinkedIn. The second one would get a bunch of comments about like how marketing doesn't matter or some bullshit. Like that. <laughs> That's how it works. If you post like the the most boring like everyone knows the answer you'll get like a thousand thumbs up like in a minute it's a circle actually, jerking yeah yeah it's just, yeah exactly like you post something that's actually insightful and you'll get a bunch of people fighting with you and then it'll get lost in the ether i love it man thanks so much for for the insights and the wisdom you're you know seriously one of the best sellers that i know for sure and i've learned a ton from you so thank you so much for passing on some of that wisdom and uh it was a pleasure Hey, it was great being here. And I hope that people typically end your podcast by telling you that they, they genuinely love you. And I love you. And I'm so happy to be on here with you. I love you too, man. 